Hi, welcome. This is a variety show with Michael and Robert. I'm Robert. And I'm Michael. How's it going today, Robert? It's going swimmingly. It's going swimmingly? You ready to get murdered? Murdered? For your birthday. You were just telling me about it before we started recording. My birthday is coming up, and in celebration, I'm having a murder mystery party. I've never done one, a proper one, where you get a character assigned to you, and you have all these facts that you have to know, and you go around trying to figure out who done it. It's going to be an exciting experience, and a first-time experience. Are you hiring some kind of group to come out and help put it on, or are you guys putting it on? We're putting it on ourselves. We bought a kit online. You can buy kits online. Is someone going to be the victim, or does everybody get to participate? I think everybody gets to participate. It would really suck if you went to a murder mystery party and you're the one that died. Okay. I'm really excited to hear how it goes, so next time I'll have to make a note to ask you about it. On my end of the world, I'm getting ready for March Madness. Auburn's most likely going to be a one seed. We'll see. Got to get through the conference tournament. But we haven't been a one seed since 1999. Hopefully it works out. We get good results, and we'll see. I'm excited, though. This is a great time of year. Let's just drop the noise and get started with this first article, which is called Neural Noise Shows the Uncertainty of Our Memories. This is an article you shared with me by Veronique Greenwood. It didn't occur to me until just now that that's a name I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, the article has to do with a different model of thinking about our memory in terms of the traditional model. It's much more about like the uncertainty or that they call it like the uncertainty of a visual working memory. Their research suggests that the brain thinks in probabilities rather than in just like facts that are encoded in our neurons and depend on like certain neurons in our brain firing. Instead, if anyone's ever tried to think back to a particular event and is either unsure of how things occurred or they notice patterns in their memories and they kind of get mixed up in terms of like what's the truth or not. It may be because of this theory that they call the Bayesian theory, which is, I mean, succinctly it says how confidently one can expect an outcome to occur given what is known of the circumstances. Basically the more the, the circumstances, the memory fits a template, the more likely you are to, to fall victim to this probability theory, which is, it's, it's almost like fitting into stereotypes. It's like these series of events happen. So like this other piece of the memory must have been this way because in that situation, this is what happens. Probably did a terrible job of explaining it, but that's the essence. It's more probabilities. It's less like your, your memories are like a strip of film that's being read through like a, a film projector. It's more like, yeah, probabilities. I don't know a better way to say it. I think you did an okay job. I think it's hard. Okay it's job. hard. It's it, it like is. This, this one was very abstract to me. It is. I found this article very fascinating because it really upends this idea. I think the perfect metaphor was what you said, Michael, where memories are not a film strip where they're set in stone and all the neurons firing. It's less clear than that. There's less clarity in it. And I really like the idea of our memories being more similar to multiple options. Yes, that there's like noise, there's distortion in it. If you've ever seen Minority Report with Tom Cruise, 
how they have the different recordings and sometimes there's distortions or there's ripples in it. We pick the one that's most probable. Our brain somehow deciphers it. That is this Bayesian theory of how our memory works. Yeah, maybe it's most probable based on stuff that we've seen be successful in the past. Like when you remember situations, you don't remember the ones that are they're going to fail or lead, you know, fail in a biological or evolutionary sense. Like if I do X, if I did X, Y, Z, I died. Now, obviously I survived. Therefore in a survival type situation, I must've done A, B, C. They did address some of the doubts with the experiment, how the Mm -hmm. fMRI was not the most reliable tool to measure how specific neurons may be contributing to this noise or this probability theory. But I found it really interesting the way that they tested it and the fact that they had participants sit in this fMRI and they showed them a dot and then they took the dot away and they said, okay, where do you think the dot is? So this is relying on their working memory and they attached a bet to it based on precision. And they noticed that if the precision increased, then their the noise that they detected was more seemingly to indicate, and this is the working theory that that noise is due to the uncertainty. So within our neurons or our neural clusters, we not only have the memory, but we also have uncertainty baked into those signals, which I thought was really fascinating. And if you can think about how we are starting to model the brain neural networks and AI, we do a lot of this probability. We weigh things. If you look at image recognition, how do you tell a sign is a sign? Well, you assign weights based off pictures and our past experiences on, oh, that's a sign. That's not a sign. You know, I told you before we started recording that I was, I just finished reading Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. If you're listening, your mileage on Jordan Peterson may vary. One of the things he presupposes in his book, you know, that's kind of hidden amongst all the other points that he makes is what is the purpose of memory? Uh, He argues that the purpose of memory is not to remember the past. The purpose of memory in his view is to collect information that can help us be more likely to survive, to survive in the future. Because that evolutionarily speaking, you know, if we're just hunting around with our spears like memory is only useful for us insofar as it helps us stay alive. We remember saber-toothed tigers because of what happened to the other guy who used to be on this podcast who didn't make it. Um, <laughs> and I, I just thought that was so interesting because the the way I think of it, I like I like growing up. I always thought the purpose of life, to an extent, or like a life well lived, was a life where you just amass a bunch of awesome memories for the purpose of looking back on them and just remembering how awesome they were. But this study almost seems to reinforce Jordan Peterson's premise that he puts forth in his book. And I thought that was a really interesting way to look at it and so different from how I've looked at it before. I think that's a really good observation by Jordan Peterson because they they talk about it. They said, well, if our brain is so good at probability, how come we're not really good at probability when it comes to our everyday life, <laughs> right? Yeah. And one of the hypotheses that they presented was that the reason our brain is better with probability for our working memory is because we've had years of evolution (laughs) to train our brain to do this. And we've had a very small section of time 
to train our brains for understanding working probability. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like if you think about it too, back you know back in the day when we were hunting out with our spears. I don't know if you remember then. Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> it's were, hard to get those flint stones sharp. <laughs> there was also not a lot of arithmetic that we were doing. Not a lot of writing. Not a lot of reasons to have to remember things, except you know for our oral storytelling. Yeah, oral storytelling. Don't do what Gwigwob did. It's like the stories that people would tell, the things that they would have to remember when they were relaying information from person to person weren't really bound by precision, like the precision of facts. They were more bound by the general nature of concepts. So like you, you can understand broad concepts and story points. Like when I think about it, like when I first heard that Homer's Odyssey was orally passed down, through the ages. Originally, I thought, like, wow, that's a lot of words to remember. But then, <laughs> you know, now when I look at it, it's like, oh, no, there's no way they memorized the entire book. They just memorized the story points, and they just worked their way through the story points, and then at some point, someone knew how to write things down, and they're like, okay, oh, well, we got the story points. We kind of got to flesh out the words and the sentences around it, and that just seems way more likely to me. I guess my point is, you're talking about from an evolutionary perspective, how, you know, much of human re- recent human history is so recent in the context of evolutionary history that, and so much has changed at that time. So like we're, ba- our brains are basically still in that mode where it's like, we're not used to having tons and tons of information, tons and tons of precision with regards to like numbers, arithmetic words, the way language is used compared to how our great, 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 great ancestors dealt with it. I think that's all I got to say about that. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. All right. What do we got next? Our next article is from Michael and it's titled Victor Frankl on meaning and the pursuit of happiness. It's a very short video. If you guys don't have a lot of time, just pop it in. It's three minutes long. You can get the essence. The summary, Victor Frankl was a psychologist who survived the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. And he talks about, in this three-minute clip, he talks about the meaning of life and how people need to have purpose. Purpose is not to pursue happiness. Happiness comes, he says, when you have a purpose that you can strive toward. And that's pretty much the summary. Yeah, so Viktor Frankl, you mentioned, survived the Holocaust when so many people were not so lucky may seem weird to call somebody who was in the Holocaust lucky, but we're very fortunate that he came through it because he's, he's a very knowledgeable psychologist with a very unique perspective. When he talks about meaning, he says, when these people were in this concentration camp, and he, he delves into this in more detail, I should say, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he was in the concentration camps. There were basically, it was basically a case study of how he responded to the situation and how all the other people around him responded to the situation. And what he observed was that the people who felt they had some purpose to be fulfilled by themselves in the future were the ones that were most mentally capable of making it through that experience. So from his perspective, meaning the meaning of life is an extremely personal thing. There's no general definition of what the meaning of life is for you. It is like the, in his terms, according to his definition of meaning, it would be the things that have yet to be fulfilled by future Robert that can only be fulfilled by you. 
And, you know, that could be a bunch of different things, uh, however big or however small. Like, it could just be being, being a really good partner, being a really good son, a really great brother in the context of your many different relationships. It could be to become the world's greatest software consultant. It could be to become the world's greatest gardener. Uh, HOA be damned. Like, it, it could it could be any number of things. And it ha- it has the ability to evolve as you evolve. So like as much as it we'd love to be like the answer to life, Robert, I've got it, it's 42. That just that that ultimately is it's so hollow. The pursuit of happiness, which is something he talks about in the second half of this this short clip, is and he, he's uh he's Austrian, I believe. He's like the Americans have it all wrong. The Declaration of Independence says the H person on earth is entitled or each american's entitled to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and he's like no 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 happiness happiness itself can't be someone's meaning you can't strive specifically for happiness happiness must be a side effect of something else that you are pursuing in your life and that got me thinking like okay it actually you know a little teaser here it reminds me of something that kurt vonnegut wrote about in one of his books which is the idea that, and he talks about it in terms of love, whether it's love or happiness, some of these things that we want so desperately out of life, no matter how much we seek them out by def- by their own definition, like optimizing for love, optimizing for happiness, Kurt Vonnegut says in his book Slapstick, looking for love is often toxic because what you will end up doing is finding something and convincing yourself that it is love. And it may not ultimately be the the love for you it could you could it it goes back to the idea of like identity anchors we talked about a couple episodes where like the thing that you find you so desperately want it to be this thing that's making that's going to bring you all the love you want or all the happiness that you want and you come to worship it and then there's no possible way that it could live up to those expectations so victor frankel tying it back to this little clip uh, referencing his book says if the meaning of life for Robert is to become the world's greatest so- independent software consultant, the best way to make you happy is by fulfilling that potential to the greatest extent of your abilities. Do you have any opinions on what your purpose of life is at this moment? I have lots of goals. So those goals would be what future Robert would attain. But is that different than purpose? Well, goals give your life purpose, right? They can give your life purpose. I guess it depends on if we think of your life as like an end, like working towards an endpoint, or the progress of like chipping away at the block and make yourself a, making yourself a better version of yourself you are today. Better being defined, however you want to define it. That's the question I had for you. The way that you explained it is when Viktor Frankl talks about the Americans have it all wrong. It's not the pursuit of happiness. It's mm-hmm. the pursuit of a purpose for whatever your personal purpose in life becomes. That will bring you happiness. Is that purpose? I guess I'm conflating the ideas of purpose and goals. You can have a purpose. Your purpose could be to be the best musician ever. And you have many goals along that that journey to fulfill your purpose of being the best musician you can be, right? Yeah. And that could bring you happiness because you are doing something that you believe is your calling. 
I, I guess if you think about it that way, basically your purpose are, are goals that are not smart, specific, measurable, yada, yada, <laughs> yada, 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 because ultimately your purpose goals or whatever they are would be something that could sustain you through a lifetime. Because if you make your goal, like I'm going to write a really awesome, I'm going to invent the next iPhone. Then as soon as you invent it, it's like, well, what's next? What's your, what's your purpose? Yeah. 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 I think, I think that's true. <laughs> you, you mentioned smart goals. I was wondering if maybe that's why people in corporate America are so unhappy is because their goals are all smart goals and they're not purpose driven. Oh, I, I think, I think it's, it's that, but it's also like we set these goals, we don't meet them and then we feel bad about not meeting them. And then our life becomes this vicious cycle of setting and not meeting goals over and over again. It's, it, it's, yeah. It's like testing yourself. Like if it's like if you're in school, just testing yourself just beyond the reaches. It's like, all right, class, today's test is going to be for not the chapters we've studied, but for the two chapters upcoming. Good luck. <laughs> it's like, all right, all right. What are we, what are we doing here? When you read Viktor Frankl's book, did he give some examples of good purposes? He doesn't give examples for other people, which I guess is consistent with his line of thinking, right? Because it's so personal in his view. But he talks about how what got him through it was the idea of seeing his wife on the other side. And he knew very well that there was a high likelihood that she was probably not alive. Ultimately, it it didn't matter. It was just the idea of meeting up with her like that purpose to be fulfilled by the end and he talks a little bit about how he lost his manuscript for his book that he was working on and how he would uh get scraps of paper so that he could ultimately write this book afterwards so i think it was a combination of those two things filling that purpose of writing the book and fulfilling that purpose of seeing his wife again and rebuilding their life together it's really interesting when i said good purpose i guess i just meant purposes that give you mental fortitude in trying times and resilience grit if you will because i could see someone's purpose could be something fairly hollow maybe um he does say the people who didn't make it the the people who viewed it more as like oh we're gonna get out by christmas day when they didn't get out by christmas day that expectation having not been met they all died pretty quickly thereafter because their hearts were broken their spirits were broken so i think what's important for for this line of thinking from his perspective is that the purpose or the objective be oriented around the future as i don't know if it needs to be as far in the future or like in the near future but it needs to be in the future something that you're always chasing potentially never yet getting to so that you always have continued motivation to keep on going so instead of orienting it around external criteria that you cannot control, like you cannot control whether the allied forces get to your concentration camp by Christmas or really any day for that matter. All you can control is like how you respond to the situation. What would you say is your purpose right now? Uh, So I think my purpose in general is to be uh, the best person I can be and uh, to make the most positive impact that I can on the world. It's not necessarily to be remembered, although from an ego perspective, that would be really cool. It's more like when I, when I talk about making the best positive impact on the world, for me, 
it's about making the, I don't have to get anywhere. I don't have to get to the top of the hierarchy to be able to do that. It's, it's making the best possible impact on the people in my life so that their day or days or whatever role I play in their life, however small, because they're the protagonist in their own story. Um, I, I, I will give them some incrementally better life experience. And theoretically, they will pass that forward to somebody else in their life and it will have ripple effects. And ultimately I, you know, I don't, I'm not particularly concerned about getting credit for making other people's life better or seeing the scoreboard at the end of the day when I'm dead and I'm sitting in front of God and he's like, all right, Michael, you scored this many good person (laughs) points. Yeah. What about you? What's your purpose? Without having thought about it or if you have thought about it off the cuff. I think it's similar to you. I often thought about this idea of legacy. Like what, when, when someone passes on, mm-hmm. and you have the memorial, you, you think about their life and other people remember the person's life and what their, that person's life meant to them. Mm-hmm. I guess my purpose would be similar to yours to leave a positive legacy on those around me, have a ripple effect that is positive because at the end of the day, if you want to leave a legacy, it could be your kids, right? If you have kids, Mm -hmm. it could be that, but ultimately it's how people remember you because that's going to persist. Even if there's no written, written language or there's no written account, the stories and the memories and the lessons and those experiences of those around you will persist into however long you know they live kind of like a coco-esque you know where as people keep remembering you right that's how you live on remember me oh don't get me started <laughs> i get every time i listen to that song i get the feels if you asked me the same question 10 years ago five years ago 20 years ago my my answer would have been completely different i but i think that's okay as long yeah. as you have a purpose, which is motivation to grit your teeth and keep pursuing something when times get tough, I think that's important to have. Now, here's a question. When do you decide that your purpose needs to change or has changed? And I think that's a great segue into this next article. I see what you did there. I shared. Yeah. All right. So this next article we got here is called Optimal Quitting by John A. List. I couldn't help but think A. List, like Southwest. Anyways, uh, it was published in University of Chicago Magazine. And broadly speaking, it, it's, a, and it's an excerpt from his book, The Voltage Effect. The chapter it pulls from pertains to optimal quitting. And the idea is like, you know, when you consider sunk costs, opportunity costs, yada, yada, yada. Basically, like, is there a point when you're pursuing something that you should quit it? He defines, or he mentions that there's like five key signatures of ideas with scaling potential and four secret four secrets that entrepreneurs can use to grow their ideas successfully. He proceeds to tell his own personal, sto- personal story about how he pursued a career in golfing. And what he ended up learning about himself was that although he was a pretty decent golfer, he was by no means set up to be exceptional. He found it hard to walk away, and he, contrib- he he attributes this to the American 
culture in his words, which is, if we refuse to quit and hang on longer and give more time to our dreams, eventually they'll come true. I'm not ready to say that that's not true, because if that's not true, then the, the idea of the American dream <laughs> becomes a lot more fragile. Ultimately, he does decide to quit. And what he what he recommends or what he personally learned as a result of this is it's really important to identify what you're good at. And then once you identify what that is, you persist at it. So a rapid period of like self-discovery followed by that persistence. How do you know when to quit though? Like how do you know if the opportunity you're working on is the right opportunity? He talks about a couple different things. He talk he talks about opportunity costs and sunk costs. He doesn't really say in specific terms like how you can know when to quit, so much as he describes what the concept of opportunity costs and sunk costs the sunk cost mental fallacy is so that you can by awareness sidestep them more easily. He also makes us aware of some decision-making mental shortcuts, such as affective forecasting, which describes our ability to predict the emotions we will feel in the future. And spoiler alert, they're very sensitive to current moods, so I, we're bad at predicting our emotions in the future world. Like, I don't know how I'm going to feel in 10 minutes, much less in two days or 10 days or a year. Subsequent to that one, he, he talks about opportunity cost neglect. Um, which I guess is a strategy related to opportunity costs. So let me correct myself from before. And basically that says you get an opportunity. People tend to think, how will that opportunity impact me and influence my success, my trajectory in life as if it's just a, like a single opportunity and there are no alternatives when instead you should look at it from the perspective of like every coin has two sides. If I'm choosing to do this, what am I saying no to and viewing it more as like a dichotomy or, a multivariate equation with many potential opportunities rather than just the one. How about you tell me how you came across it? I first heard about him and his book, The Voltage Voltage Drop, from a podcast I was listening to. And it was really focused on scaling up your business. But within this kernel, this investigation into how to scale up your business and that journey that he had, he comes across this idea of scaling your skills, which I think is where you also stumble upon optimally quitting, right? Because yes, in the, in the article and also in the book, he alludes to this anecdote of how he thought he was a good golfer. You know, he was in high school, he was a golfer and he was on the college golf team. I think it was on the college golf team and how, when he was looking at it, he actually ended up coming back and playing with a couple buddies of his and he started a track and he realized he's not as good as his buddies are. I mean, he played the same amount of time as they did and he put in the same amount of money and investment into this pursuit of being a golf pro, but he wasn't nearly where they were at. So it got him thinking as hard as it was because he had spent so much time and effort and he identified so closely with being a golfer. He had to evaluate, is this the best use of my time? Do my skills scale? My golf skills, will they scale in the future? Or is it better to hang up my golf clubs and devote my time, which we all know is something as a precious commodity, to 
skills and a pursuit that will scale better in the future. And that's what he ultimately decided. He said, my skills as an economist will scale better than my skills as a professional golfer. Yeah, so the thing I kind of get hung up on is this idea of scaling oneself. Because I always think of scaling as like, how can I organize a process so that I'm not a bottleneck and I can get other people involved in this pursuit? And ultimately, we can have many, many, many parallel threads instead of just my one thread that's clogging up the system and slowing me down. Like, if it's just me, I, I have less of a sense of that. Replace people with hours of your life okay now go through that brain exercise again so one hour of your time in a discipline that you're good at will scale to a better increase in skill set or more achievement than an hour of you playing golf or some a dis a putting that hour in a discipline that you're not as good at. Right? Okay. You won't get as much scaling effect. <laughs> scaling effect being accomplishments, if you want to use that metric, accomplishments or aptitude. I think aptitude is probably a better metric. And if you think of it that way, it's, it's kind of fascinating. I've had a couple inflection points in my life where... I identified or pursued one thing and came to realize that it doesn't scale. <laughs> and it wasn't making me happy either. Even though there is that whole American dream or the societal that grit your teeth, keep pounding, keep pounding, keep pounding, keep pounding. And while there is value in grit and persistence, there is also value in saying, can I take this time and be happier if I put it somewhere else? Or if I choose a different purpose in life, will I be able to achieve that, gain greater aptitude toward that purpose for every hour I put in? So tell me about one of those inflection points. The greatest example would be when I was in graduate school said, I want to get my doctorate in chemical engineering. And I got into grad school and I was pounding away. You know, I was working really hard. I spent hours and hours in the lab. One time I think I spent, I, I slept in the lab. I spent 24 hours running this experiment. And I woke up at four hour intervals so that I can take my measurements when I slept in the lab. So there wasn't a lack of grit there. It wasn't that I got the first obstacle and I quit. But I started to realize with my self-awareness, but also with others around me making observations <laughs> that I wasn't happy that this purpose was literally putting my health in the ground. My health was deteriorating. My mental health was deteriorating as I continued to grit my teeth and pursue this purpose that I set forth, which is to obtain a PhD in chemical engineering. And it took me punching a hole in the wall, kicking a hole in the wall to start to realize I need to change. The amount of hours I was pouring into it 
was not getting me any closer to this purpose. There was no aptitude being gained. I mean, maybe a little bit, but nothing was working. And I also looked around at my colleagues and I saw them putting in hours, similar hours. Yeah, it was tough for them too. And they had setbacks, but they seemed to get more aptitude. They seemed to progress. Uh, there was also something where I observed that the way that their mind was thinking and the way that they processed things was very unlike mine. And that's when I decided I can't do this anymore. So I quit, got my master. I mastered out, as they called it, out of my PhD. And I pursued my career in software development. And I'm much happier. I got a couple more questions. Sure. One first question would be is there an alternate reality in which you realize earlier that maybe it's not the thing for you and what does that look like instead of punching a hole in the wall and driving your health into the ground is there some healthier moment in time in a parallel universe where parallel robert's like huh this isn't for me and like how does that version of robert come to that decision or does it have to be that situation where everything just Sure, shutting down. I think there's a little both. I mean, that, that experience that I went through helped me gain certain things, that mm-hmm. certain lessons, life lessons, and observations about myself. But to that end, I think there were many hints and signs along the way. If I only listened to them, I may have changed course sooner. I may have changed my purpose sooner. And who knows where I've been? I mean, we're terrible at predicting what the future would be. But I imagine I would have been maybe happier <laughs> overall. What are some examples of hints, if if I can ask that? I didn't always, I didn't have the same kind of mindset as a as a researcher. Research is very isolating. Following a PhD is a lonely path, can be a lonely path because you are striving into the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I always worked better with a group of people rather than in isolation. So you became a software developer. I see. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Okay. Keep going. Sorry. But because, and, and, and feedback in a, in a environment that had a lot of feedback. So that was one of the things. And if I had listened to that sooner, I would have realized maybe this isn't the right environment for, me oh as if we want to put it in a metaphor you don't plant a banana pod in colorado i mean (laughs) yeah it has the potential to grow the pod itself but putting it in an environment that is not conducive to it growing you're not going to get a banana plant out of it and i think that if i had listened to those signs or i've seen those signs Earlier, I could have prevented myself from being stuck in this place that I wasn't going to grow. Next question. When you pivoted to software, was that a calculated decision? Like, how did you end up deciding that that was the direction you wanted to redirect towards? Because just looking at the facts, chemical engineering, laboratory science, PhD type path seems very different from software development. That's true. I think I kind of also fell on that. I knew basically when I got out of 
grad school or when I was making that transition, I knew I didn't want to do research in academia. I was done with it. But I also still didn't learn my lesson <laughs> because I interviewed at research at pharmaceutical companies where I would be doing that. I think what was the different about it though was that it would be more collaborative in a team environment. Okay. Okay. Do you think you have to know which direction to take? Because it kind of sounds like you don't have to know. You just try things and then you find out through this period of self-discovery whether you like it more or you're just better at certain things than other Yeah, I think that's true. It is true. I mean, no one said that finding your whatever your purpose is, it's going to be easy. Yeah. But you got to try things. You can't be afraid of trying things. It's definitely easier. I mean, you can see people who have decided that this is my purpose in life and they're good at their purpose. If you pick your purpose early on, it's, it's a gift to be able to know that. Maybe a gift and a curse. I, I, I haven't met that many people that have known what their purpose is so early on in life. But those that do, they can direct all their choices in their time toward that pursuit. And so they, for every hour that they could spend, like we, we spend, us mortals spend, exploring something else that may not be the right path for us, they have this path. And that hour goes to increasing their aptitude. It's incredibly sad that someone can go through their entire life and not find their niche or their purpose. Because just as quickly as someone can find it, I think there's also situations where people don't find it. That just makes me sad. It makes me think of, uh, in a less sad note, the uh, status quo cognitive bias, which is like, we're so beholden to sticking with the status quo in so many situations that uh, it really limits our potential. It almost it goes kind of back to what you were talking about last week with Gabrielle related to that zone of discomfort where it's like this, the status quo is our comfort circle. Uh, <laughs> but the only way we're going to grow is if we extend beyond it and we disregard the HOA who, who may potentially be listening and just do what we're going to do. To anyone who's listening, that's from the HOA. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I understand the purpose of an HOA, but go ahead. Sorry. No, yeah, uh, I know. We're just messing. Sorry, HOA. Uh, anyways, I think it's I think it's so awesome that you found what you believe to be your current. Uh, I don't know purpose. Purpose feels like too mushy strong psychological work but it's you found like a pursuit that you really enjoy i think that's really awesome well can i ask you yeah have you yes, had I... an inflection point in your life where i mean you had just talked about it that your purpose maybe 10 years ago is different than your purpose now i mean the the best example for me kind of goes back to school too i'm sure there's multiple examples since then like there's a thousand times where i wanted to leave my job but didn't uh, those are choices, right, that impact my future. Mm. Um, but the example I would give would be in college when I decided to transfer and ultimately change my major from a pre-med track to uh, an applied sciences track through engineering. I'm not sure I wanted to be a doctor or if I had just been convinced that I would be a good doctor. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. I didn't pursue the, ultimately pursue that path. 
I was in a lab a little bit too. Not to the extent of commitment that you were. Like I wasn't a graduate student or anything, but uh, I I didn't enjoy science for the sake of science's sake. It was it was more stimulating to me to figure out how I could apply it in the real world. Um, and you you could say biology and all that stuff applies to the real world as much as you want, but like with engineering, it's a lot easier to see how it applies to the real world whether the real world you can define the real world however you want but at the end of the day i enjoyed it a lot more i mean i was still a little lost because i didn't know what i wanted to do with it there was there was some i was a little bit of a mercenary in my decision where it's like well engineering will get me a job biology won't if you know if i end up not going to med school i don't have as many options what is that thought process i mean he talks in this article let me i'm gonna bring it back to the article he talks about you know, looking at these sunk costs and these opportunity costs, where you want to spend your time, how your time scales. When you made that decision, obviously it's not an easy decision to transfer. I mean, there's a lot of paperwork involved. You got to do a lot of things. You got to transition. It's hard. Yeah, but you have to have up that purpose and you have to know that what path you were on, you didn't want to have you quit right uh, what yeah, was that decision <laughs> it's not um, a bad thing i mean as yeah. you've seen it, i mean who knows what where you would have been you probably would have been in med we school you probably would have only been three years out of med school right now but what what, what was that process what was that process of thinking about that why did you decide that that your time was better spent in chemical engineering well, I just kind of, I decided I needed a change. I didn't know what the change was. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. That was crystal clear to me. I, I knew I needed a job after graduation. So using those two bits of information, I was like, all right, if I don't want to be a doctor uh, and I want to optimize for getting a job, can I do that at my current school? If so, what are my options? As a liberal arts school, not a lot of other options. All right, what's the next best option? Um, well, if I transfer, transferring is expensive because they allocate scholarships for incoming freshmen, not for transfer students. So that narrowed my pool down to in-state schools, look at in-state schools, what are they good at? What are they good at helping students get jobs? Or what degrees are good at helping students from these schools get jobs? Engineering at Auburn. So I ended up there and then I was like, all right, what discipline of engineering? Uh, Chemical engineering is the hardest, so probably it's the best. Uh, people seem to have a lot of options coming out of there. They could even go to med school if they want to. So, but why did you decide you don't want to be a doctor? Well, what about it? Where you like it's not more. I my just time. knew it wasn't right, and I I didn't want to sit around on a track that like I couldn't quite explain wasn't right. I was like. I'm not in my major classes yet. If I were on another track, I might only be a semester behind. I'm just going to change now rather than changing later and regretting it. Hmm. So you made that. You made that opportunity cost. You said, okay, what is the cost of me staying here, finishing with pre-med, going to med school versus just doing something other than, than pre-med? Yeah, I'm right. not sure if it was a decision made 
with rationality and courage or a decision made with fear uh, of like being unemployable when I graduated, but it ended up working out for me in the end. Uh, I told you when I started talking about this stuff that I, every day is kind of an inflection point. We're all, we always have the potential to make good and bad choices every single day. So every day has the potential to be an inflection point more commonly, I would say for bad. So like in my case, uh, I think it made sense for me to stay to say, no, I don't want to change jobs for the last 10 years at my current job. And every that doesn't mean every single day has been the happiest day of my life. And I felt wonderfully fulfilled by going down this path. But with time, you know, given giving it some opportunity to age, that decision to age and mature and, you know, my own personal growth alongside of that, I've come to realize that like the career that I fell into through that, uh, through my own personal self-discovery, through the different tracks at my company and through those experiences in college and before, I've kind of found myself in a spot that I actually really like. Um, And I feel like if if I were to make a decision today to change something, it would be much more intentional, much less driven based on fear, much more driven based on getting to an outcome or a continuing on a journey that I want to be on rather than just grass is greener syndrome. A couple things I did quit along the way. At some point I was fascinated with coding, not, not very good at coding ditched that I committed to myself. I will never try to be good at coding uh, and in gardening. <laughs> I, I still like to pick up plants every once in a while, but I just am not cut out for it. I suck at it. Maybe it's the climate here. I don't know. Or you just tell yourself you suck. Uh, yeah, it could be a limit. Yeah, you know what? You think it it's a limiting that, belief? But it's also like, do I really want to spend a lot of time getting better at being a gardener? I don't know. The limiting beliefs and this optimal quitting stuff kind of butt heads a little bit. I do. Yeah. I do. I think that's why he doesn't say a blueprint for, should I optimally quit? Yeah. <laughs> because it's a very personal and contextual choice. To quit something, it's hard. Quitting is not easy. It's scary too. Yeah, quitters never win, or some bullshit like that. They would tell us all the time. I mean, at some point, you gotta you gotta stick with something. But uh, well, yeah. But where's that line, right? Like when your mental health is going down, or as you said, I just you just there was something in you that felt that I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> I didn't want to go to med school. Yeah, and you can sit around and, like, if you like to code and you went down that PhD track, you might tell yourself, oh, I'll, I'll learn how to do it someday. But if you just sit around and don't do anything about it, don't start taking the steps to realize that potential, it's never going to happen. Someday it's never going to come, yeah. as the CCR song famously says. Gotta yeah, um, you jump in, and then that is where the magic happens. That's where you become the best version of yourself. You try things that maybe they will, maybe they won't, but maybe you'll feel something growing inside of you. Video number four, Michael shared, is called Kurt Vonnegut on how to make your soul grow. It's a two-minute video, another short video, but has a lot of oomph. The context of this video, there is a 
class doing a project at school and they were reading a book by Kurt Vonnegut and they wanted him to come to the school and talk. And so they sent him all these messages to try and get him to come over. And Kurt Vonnegut sent them a letter with some advice. And it basically boiled down to do something to make your soul grow. Do something just for you. Write a poem. And he, he, one of his examples was to write a poem. But at the end of the poem, don't share it with anyone. Don't, don't publish it. Just take it and rip it up. Kind of this idea that you should do things for this for doing them, I guess. That's what I took away from yeah, it. Yeah. That it's not, it's doing things doesn't have to be to get you more fame or publish things. It's for your own self. It's for your soul. And doing those actions make your soul grow. Yeah, it, I, you said it pretty well. I think this rings more and more true today, more now more than ever. Because there's so many ways on the internet to self-promote uh, or to make something and stick it out there. Or to think that if I make something and I don't, or if I do something and I don't take pictures of it, did it even happen? <laughs> I I actually did the thing he suggested to the class, which is write a six-line poem, make it as good as you can with a rhyme scheme. I like how he says, no fair tennis without a net. and then uh, And then you rip it up. I actually didn't rip mine up. Uh, and I didn't spend like a ton of time on it, making it as good as I possibly could. Um, but what I found is it made me look at like the the practice of putting it into the rhyme scheme and the form of a poem rather than just prose. It really made me look at things uh, a little more artfully than I might normally. It, it, it kind of like reframes your perspective because it's, like in order to write poetry, you have to think different because that's just not how your brain's going to normally think. Uh, and I didn't do what he said about ripping it up into a million pieces. I didn't show it to anybody, but I just folded it up and tucked it away somewhere where, and I put a date on it. So like future Michael might find it one day and it would be like a little time capsule of how I think today or today, this month in 2020, um, when I'm 32 years old, um, I don't know. It, it made me want to write more poetry. It made me want to make more stuff. As an expression of yourself? Yeah. Or just a way to figure out the world. Like, I mean, we've talked about it before. I like to write. And a lot of times you might think, well, I'm going to sit down. Like, like in school, they're like, write an essay about this. Write a book report on this. But in my experience, just writing on my own time, um, a lot of times you you don't know what you're sitting down to write about. You're writing to think, you're writing to explore. So like as much as I'd like to sit down, pound out an article every day and be done with it, um, that's just not how it works. Like I don't just, like sure, I might have a couple thoughts bounce around in my head and I might expand on those, but ultimately like, I don't know what my final conclusion is going to be. That really resonates with me. Sometimes when you sit down to write, I write in my journal. And sometimes when I sit down to write, I think to myself, I don't know what I'm going to write today. Like what? The sun is shining, the birds are chirping, and then I start, if I start with those sentences, then it could end up being a page long because my mind will just take it someplace else. I really like this idea, just for the sake of that exploration, that discovery, the 
practice, not necessarily to show it to anybody. Like, oh yeah, I did it. It's almost a meditative state. I mean, when you meditate, yeah, you can videotape yourself meditating. But as of right now, we have no way of looking into people's thoughts Thank yet. God. Thank goodness. <laughs> but those are your own. And if you meditate, you can also go on a journey of your own. And it doesn't go anywhere unless you just are actively just talking out loud. But it doesn't go anywhere. It just stays there. It it helps you figure out what you actually think too, because sometimes like we in our consciousness, attend our conscious attention, we can only really focus like we're very visual creatures, auditory yada yada yada. yada. We can only really focus on so much at one time. You can only have one thought at one time, and sometimes you can have you might think you're multitasking or you're just in the throes of everyday life or you're scrolling through Twitter and you've got you think you've got all these different parallel thoughts going on, but in reality. Um, it's just a, you got one CPU and all the thoughts are trying to occur in rapid succession back to back to back, but they're, they're messy. They're unclear. They're disjointed. But when you start writing them out, you, you, you kind of see how it all fits together in a way that you can't see when you're just sitting there eyes closed, thinking about it. Um, that, that wasn't meant to be a dig at meditating or anything, but like when you're, when you're in the normal throes every day to day life, when you've got that sensory overwhelm that we're constantly being uh, inundated with mm. the it actually kind of re- it relates very strongly to kurt vonnegut's writing style have you ever read any of his books uh, i have not so not. i've probably he's written like 18 or 19 novels he's dead now i've probably read 10 or 12 of them i, I haven't read all of them but i've read quite a few i got really into him during college and he's known for being very stream of consciousness. They're all fiction. They're all really weird. And it, it, they're written almost as if he's just writing eh, you know, his stream of consciousness. The details he chooses to highlight, because I just picked up another one of his books that I had bought that the receipt showed 2011. Um, and he, he doesn't highlight, he doesn't tell them the details in ways that someone would tell them and if they're intending to build this like huge extravagant world like frank herbert did when he when we read dune right where like each sentence mm-hmm. builds on the last to give you this bigger picture it's more like kilgore trout's back at it again he lives right next door to robert in indianapolis and it happens to be sunny today and he just he just kind of goes through a bunch of random facts <laughs> and i think in doing that he ends up stumbling upon a bunch of crazy interesting meaningful astute observations that he might not find otherwise it's so like it results in like if you're just a normal fiction reader it results in something that's so abnormal it almost goes back to what we were talking about what i was talking about before about how like it's a representation of a change in thought patterns like when you're writing poetry or when you're writing or reading something this way because it's so different it's such a contrast to how we mm. normally experience life I like it. I didn't write any poem. That's okay. I didn't. I didn't. When I did it, so when I watched the video, I didn't write any poems. But it really got me thinking about when I play the piano, because if you play the piano and you have no recording device and there's no one around to listen, you just kind of you do it, you make it, or you play it. The sound goes out, and then that's it. It's a fleeting moment in time. 
that isn't recorded, only up here, in your own mind. It's crazy because we're we live in a society that's so focused on output. A lot of times, days go by where I don't write, and it's just because I don't, I don't feel up. I don't think I'm gonna come up with anything amazing. But when, not to say that anything I've ever written is amazing, but it's like every time you step up to write, particularly if you write essays, where you 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 write for a bit, you edit for a bit, and then you're done. Between each essay, you you it's like the act of writing an essay is climbing a mountain, and then when you're at the top of the mountain, you're back at the bottom because you're working on the next one, and so you have to you have to get used to the cycle of starting up the mountain, finishing, back at the bottom, and cl- basically climbing the mountain every day or every time you sit down to write, and it's intimidating because you also don't want to waste time, you don't want to fail, you don't want to create something that's garbage. I I was thinking today. My writing would probably benefit a lot if I did write more bad stuff. Because that me if I write more bad stuff, that means I'm writing more. And there's a higher likelihood that I will also create more good stuff. Or some of that bad stuff could turn into good stuff. Hey, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't be afraid. I mean, I think we talked about last time I was afraid of that the garden wouldn't turn out, but after listening to that episode and thinking about it a little more, I shouldn't be afraid of a pursuit of doing something. Just think of it as if you have, if there's one success out of your 100 tries, you got to get through those 100 tries. You got to get those through 50. It's like, get them out of your system. Get the bad stuff out of your system so that you can get to the good stuff. What? And you can't get the bad stuff out if you don't do it. <laughs> Just like this podcast. Yeah. Right? At the very beginning, we weren't very polished. We didn't have a set. We didn't have a format. And as we continued to go, we worked out the wrinkles. We got more polished. Michael's got a lot better at editing. I just started editing. Oh, come on. So I, I can't say anything. Come on. But <laughs> well, we, we both like we've 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 both gotten better in ways both observed and explained and ways unobserved and unexplained. Exactly. Yeah. Can I uh, we can wrap this up in just a second because there's really not much else to this other than the fact that it's just a wonderful letter and I would recommend anybody read it or watch the video where the guy reads it. Um this really made me miss and it reminded me of the power of personal letters. I, I almost want to go out and like buy my own letterhead that's like custom for me and just send people handwritten letters. I just love it. You should. Do you like receiving handwritten letters? Hell yeah. It's awesome. Plus, okay. I, I, Kurt, every time I read Kurt Vonnegut or listen to his writing, it's just an inspiration. Like, he's, He's so he's talking about stuff that could potentially sound really stuffy, like making your soul grow, yada yada yada. Blech. That's kind of shit people write about on the internet all the time these days. But he does it in a way that's both unassuming and charming. He's like, "I'd love to come talk to your class, but frankly, I look like an iguana these days because I'm really old." <laughs> <I'm just> like, <laughs> Who else would say that? Like, everybody would. Like most people you'd hear. Well, they'd either not respond to the kids. He responded to these kids too, which is amazing. Uh, either not respond to the kids, or um, or tell them no, or through some kind of self-aggrandizement, come across as like hoity-toity in his response. But he he came across as 
he responded. He came across as like perfectly human, charming, like. And I think I bet you a lot of the kids ended up writing those poems. I hope and became so. better human beings as a result of it. Write a poem, make some music, just for for themselves, yeah. for the sake of it. Draw, uh, dance. He gave a lot of examples. Do whatever, make art. I think he says do art right now and do it for yourself for the rest of your lives. Love that. That actually feels really good if you're just to dance by yourself. Have a dance party of one. Have you ever... Don't think Don't think about what it looks like because if you think about what it looks like, you probably won't do it. Just do it. Just put on your favorite music to dance to and just start to move. Yeah, I've danced in the elevator when I got my headphones in a lot, and then uh, and then I'm, I double take to make sure nobody else is in there. I'm terrified of dancing in public, but dancing in private, no better feeling. Yeah, do it for yourself. Yeah. Okay, Michael. I think that's the end of our articles. Yeah, I enjoyed these ones. I hope other people found some value in them too. Enjoyed them, if nothing else. Thank you to all of our listeners for staying on. We really appreciate you sticking with us. This is episode 11. If you want to join in on a conversation, we have a Twitter handle. Tweet us at at Variety Show Pod. You can also leave us a voice message on Anchor, and we could include it in a future podcast. We may not. It just depends. Hopefully, we'll include it. <laughs> If you want to leave us a five-star review, feel free to leave us a five-star review. If you don't want to leave us a five-star review or leave us less than five stars, you can go leave it somewhere else. You can grow your soul out on your own. Let's <laughs> <laughs> go write some poems. <laughs> uh, once again, check out Michael's blog. My vlog, I don't have right now, but uh, Michael has a lot of great insights. And as always, stay curious. Stay curious, folks.